Yes, folks, a Republican climate solution is possible. And you know what? It may even be better. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do, get commercial-free versions of every episode, and occasional members-only bonus content, visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today, including TED Talks from former Republican Congressman Bob Inglis and author and entrepreneur Ted Halstead, an interview with Evangelical Reverend Mitch Hescox on the regional PBS series Immense Possibilities, a field report from Democracy at Works economic update, and finishing with another interview on immense possibilities with Bob Inglis. When I um, first went to Congress, I said that climate change was a bunch of hooey. Um, Al Gore's imagination. Had a very successful press conference one time, sacks of coal, wood for fire burning, and uh, we said uh, Al Gore is going to raise these poor people's energy prices here in the cold Greenville, South Carolina, of course. Not many people heat with coal or wood in Greenville, South Carolina. Some do. Very successful press conference. It was all based on ignorance for me. I had not looked into the facts at all. All I knew was that Al Gore was for it, and therefore I was against it. (laughs) Because I represented perhaps the reddest district in the reddest state in the nation, Greenville, Spartanburg, South Carolina. I'll fight you for that distinction. There may be some districts uh, in other parts of the country that think that they are the reddest district, but I think ours is probably the reddest district in the reddest state in the nation. I was out of Congress for six years thereafter and uh, practicing commercial real estate law again. My son came to me when I was running for Congress again in 04. He was voting for the first time. He just turned 18. And uh, he said to me, Dad, I'll vote for you, but you're going to clean up your act on the environment. (laughs) It's the first of three steps in a change for me, because now I had this new constituency. Um, My son, his four sisters, his mother all agreed, all of whom could change the locks on the doors. And so I had to respond to this constituency. Second step for me was getting on science committee. I'm not a scientist. I just played one when the lights came on at science committee. Um, but I got the opportunity to go to Antarctica and saw in the ice core drillings at the South Pole the evidence. This is pretty clear. Long stability followed by an uptick in CO2 that coincides with the Industrial Revolution. If I burn logs in my fireplace this winter, not so necessary in South Carolina, but we do it. Uh, it's no big deal. That tree off my little farmette had just recently been sinking CO2 out of the air. If I burn it and release it, it's no big deal. But if I go deep into the earth and pull up trees and vegetation, animals that have long been gone under heat, time, and pressure, turned into fossil fuels, bring them up, burn them, I change the chemistry of the air, The physics of light are such that light enters, radiant heat doesn't escape, we have warming. So I saw that evidence in Antarctica. Third step for me was actually, amazingly, another opportunity to go to Antarctica. Usually you don't get the chance. By the way, uh, advice for you. If you're ever running for Congress, um, what you want to do is make sure to go only to places that um, are cold uh, on trips. Because if it's cold in your district and you are traveling, say, to a place with white sandy beaches and uh, warm waters, your constituents will get upset with you. But nobody ever complained, even in the Reddit District in the Reddit State, about me going to Antarctica a second time. There was a seat available. They said, listen, we've got a cancellation. You want to go? I said, are you kidding me? Of course I want to go. It's fabulous. So I went and got surprised by, like I say, the third step in my change. Um, We had the opportunity to go to the Great Barrier Reef and see coral bleaching. And I was inspired by an Aussie climate scientist who shares my worldview and who, in the course of snorkeling with him, I figured out that we shared a worldview, that he was worshiping God in the creation, not worshiping the creation, but worshiping the God behind the creation, Subsequently, I had plenty of time to talk with him, and he talked to me about 
changing his life to love God and love people, people that he would never know, could never know, because they'll come along after us. So I was inspired by Scott. I came home and I introduced the Raise Wages Cut Carbon Act of 2009. Note to self, do not introduce carbon tax in midst of great recession, because people will not like that. Um, so there I was uh, defending this action, and you can really see um, my political life as a measuring life for action on energy and climate. First six years, like I, say, was, I said, it was Huey, is out six years, came back for another six. By the way, I thought it'd be a lot longer than six that second time around. We said it was English 2.0, the new and improved version. Um, but they were having a tea party um, in, um, in uh, June of 2010 in uh, the 4th District of South Carolina, and I got specifically uninvited to said tea party. I thought it was a nice enough fella should be invited. I was uninvited. Um, but if you look at my measuring life, my political life is a measuring life of actual energy and climate. It's, it is, it tracks. In 04, when I ran again and with that new constituency, my son and his four sisters, my wife, um, I said that energy security was going to be my main thing. The district said, okay, English, that's a little bit strange, but go ahead. Um, the economy was good. Um, then came uh, 06, 06, still the economy was good. Fine, English, a little bit weird, but um, we have General Electric making wind turbines here. We got Michelin making low rolling resistance tires, and we got BMW talking about hydrogen cars. Um, BMW makes cars in Spartanburg, South Carolina. By the way, BMW means Bubba makes wheels. I don't know if you knew that or not. But so we were persuaded that uh, that action on energy and energy security made sense even in this district, and it was fine. Thank goodness the Republican primary was in June of 2008, not later, because as you recall, the collapse started. Uh, and uh, that, uh, as, as that came to the end, end of that year. And so, um, but 10 we knew was going to be a difficult cycle. And it turned out to be a very difficult cycle. And having been reelected in 2004 with 85% of the primary vote, going to losing the 2010 primary with only 29% of the vote, identify with uh, Rick Perry. It's a spectacular face plant. Um, and so... Um, uh, but here's the thing. I, having now been declared a heretic, am, am out on the street proclaiming it. Because I figure that once you're described as a heretic, just go right down Main Street parading and saying you're a heretic. And so, so I have the, uh, I have the wonderful opportunity now to travel the country and tell the champions of free enterprise to overcome their inferiority complex, they apparently think they're no good at energy and climate. And so when the topic comes up, my friends, my conservative friends, the people that I identify with, shrink in science denial because we think we're no good. But actually, we're very good. We're the kid in class who has the answer. Raise your hand. You got the answer. It's free enterprise, and you have known it all along. What it takes is simply this, a true cost comparison between the competing fuels. Put all the cost in, take all the subsidies out, and free enterprise can fix climate change. As many of you know, there's something about becoming a parent that concentrates the mind on long-term problems like climate change. It was the birth of my daughter that inspired me to launch 
this climate organization in order to counteract the excessive polarization of this issue in the United States and to find a conservative pathway forward. Yes, folks, a Republican climate solution is possible. And you know what? It may even be better. <laughs> Let me try to prove that to you. What we really need is a killer app to climate policy. In the technology world, a killer app is an application so transformative that it creates its own market, like Uber. In the climate world, a killer app is a new solution so promising that it can break through the seemingly insurmountable barriers to progress. These include the psychological barrier. Climate advocates have long been encouraging their fellow citizens to make short-term sacrifices now for benefits that accrue to other people in other countries 30 or 40 years in the future. It just doesn't fly because it runs contrary to basic human nature. Next is the geopolitical barrier. Under the current rules of global trade, countries have a strong incentive to free ride off the emissions reductions of other nations instead of strengthening their own programs. This has been the curse of every international climate negotiations, including Paris. Finally, we have the partisan barrier. Even the most committed countries, Germany, the United Kingdom, Canada, are nowhere near reducing emissions at the required scale and speed, not even close. And the partisan climate divide is far more acute here in the United States. We are fundamentally stuck, and that is why we need a killer app of climate policy to break through each of these barriers. I'm convinced that the road to climate progress in the United States runs through the Republican Party and the business community. So in launching the Climate Leadership Council, I started by reaching out to a who's who of Republican elder statesmen and business leaders, including James Baker and George Shultz, the two most respected Republican elder statesmen in America, Martin Feldstein and Greg Mankiw, the two most respected conservative economists in the country, and Henry Paulson and Rob Walton, two of the most successful and admired business leaders. Together, we co-authored The Conservative Case for Carbon Dividends. This represents the first time that Republican leaders put forth a concrete, market-based climate solution. Thank you. We presented our plan at the White House two weeks after President Trump moved in. Almost every leading editorial board in the country has since endorsed our plan. And Fortune 100 companies from a wide range of industries are now getting behind it. So by now you're probably wondering, what exactly is this plan? Well, our carbon dividend solution is based on four pillars. The first is a gradually rising carbon tax. Although capitalism is a wonderful system, like many operating systems, it's prone to bugs, which in this case are called market failures. By far the largest is that market prices fail to take social and environmental costs into account. That means that every market transaction is based on incorrect information. And this fundamental bug of capitalism, more than any other single factor, is to blame for a climate predicament. Now, in theory, this should be an easy problem to fix. Economists agree that the best solution is to put a price on the carbon content of fossil fuels, otherwise known as a carbon tax. This would discourage carbon emissions in every single economic transaction every day of the year. However, a carbon tax by itself has proven to be unpopular and a political dead end. The answer is to return all the money raised directly to citizens in the form of equal monthly dividends. This would transform an unpopular carbon tax into a popular and populist solution. And it would also solve the underlying psychological barrier that we discussed, 
by giving everyone a concrete benefit in the here and now. And these benefits would be significant. Assuming a carbon tax rate that starts at $40 per ton, a family of four would receive $2,000 per year from the get-go. According to the U.S. Treasury Department, the bottom 70% of Americans would receive more in dividends than they would pay in increased energy prices. That means that 223 million Americans would win economically from solving climate change. And that is revolutionary and could fundamentally alter climate politics. But there is another revolutionary element here. The amount of the dividend would grow as the carbon tax rate increases. The more we protect our climate, the more our citizens benefit. This creates a positive feedback loop, which is crucial because the only way we will reach our long-term emission reduction goals is if the carbon tax rate goes up every year. The third pillar of our program is eliminating regulations that are no longer needed once that a carbon dividends plan is enacted. This is a key selling point to, to Republicans and business leaders. So why should we trade climate regulations for a price on carbon? Well, let me show you. Our plan would achieve nearly twice the emissions reductions of all Obama-era climate regulations combined, and nearly three times the new baseline after President Trump repeals all of those regulations. That assumes a carbon tax starting at $40 per ton, which translates into roughly an extra 36 cents per, ga per gallon of gas. Our plan by itself would meet the high end of America's commitment under the Paris Climate Agreement. And as you can see, the emissions reductions would continue over time. This illustrates the power of a conservative climate solution based on free markets and limited government. We would end up with less regulation and far less pollution at the same time while helping working class Americans get ahead. Doesn't that sound like something we could all support? The fourth and final pillar of our program is a new climate domino effect based on border carbon adjustments. Now, that may sound complicated, but it too is revolutionary because it provides us a whole new strategy to reach a global price on carbon, which is ultimately what we need. Let me show you an example. Uh, suppose that country A adopts a carbon dividends plan and country B does not. Well, to level the playing field and protect the competitiveness of its industries, country A would tax imports from country B based on their carbon content. Fair enough. But here's where it gets really interesting, because the money raised at the border would increase the dividends going to the citizens of country A. Well, how long do you think it would take the public in country B to realize that that money should be going to them and to push for a carbon dividends plan in their own land? Add a few more countries and we get a new climate domino effect. Once one major country or region adopts carbon dividends with border or carbon adjustments, other countries are compelled to follow suit. One by one, the dominoes fall. And this domino effect could start anywhere. My preference, strongly, is the United States. But it could also start in the United Kingdom, in Germany or another European country, or even in China. Let's take China as an example. China is committed to reducing greenhouse gas emissions. But what its leaders care even more about is transitioning their economy to consumer-led economic development. Well, nothing could do more to hasten that transition than giving every Chinese citizen a monthly dividend. In fact, this is the only policy solution that would enable China to meet its environmental and economic goals at the same time. That's why this is the killer app of climate policy, because it would enable us to overcome each of the barriers we discussed earlier. The psychological barrier, 
the partisan barrier, and as we've just seen, the geopolitical barrier. All we need is a country to lead the way. And one method of finding what you're looking for is to take out an ad. So let's read this one together. Wanted, country to pioneer carbon dividends plan. Cost to country, zero. Starting date, as soon as possible. Advantages, most effective climate solution. Popular and populist, pro-growth and pro-business. Shrinks government and helps the working class. Additional compensation, gratitude of current and future generations, including my daughter. Thank you. Just one question. I'm actually not sure I've seen a conservative get a standing O at TED before. That is pretty cool. Um, so, so, I mean, the logic seems really powerful, but um, some people you talk to in politics say, you know, it's, it's, a, it's hard to imagine this still getting through Congress. How are you feeling about momentum behind this? So, I understand that many are very pessimistic about what's happening in the United States with President Trump. I'm less pessimistic. Here's why. The actions of this White House, the early actions on climate, are just the first move in a complex game of climate chess. So far, it's been a repeal-only strategy. The pressure is going to mount for a replacement program, which is where we come in. And there are three reasons why, which I'll go through real quickly. One, the business community is fundamentally parting ways with the White House on climate change. In fact, we're finding a number of Fortune 100 companies supporting our program. Within two months, we're going to be announcing some really surprising names coming out in favor of this program. Two. There is no issue in American politics where there's a more fundamental gap between the Republican base and the Republican leadership than climate change. And three, thinking of this analogy of chess, the big decision up ahead is, does the administration stay in Paris? Well, let's pan it out both ways. If it stays in Paris, as many are pushing for in the administration, well, then that begs the question, what's the plan? We have the plan. But if they don't stay in Paris, the international pressure will be overwhelming. Our Secretary of State will be asking other countries for NATO contributions, and they'll be saying, no, give us our Paris commitment. Come through on your commitments, we'll come through on ours. So international business and even the Republican base will all be calling for a Republican replacement plan, and hopefully we've provided one. As I hope we're learning today, sometimes it's good to get outside our own bubbles and hear from a variety of interesting perspectives. The algorithms that influence our media consumption don't always make that easy, so our phones and our social media feeds just become more and more reflections of ourselves without us even understanding how things got that way. Well, the WNYC program on the media cares deeply about these issues, and while maintaining the civility and fairness that are the hallmarks of public radio, Brooke Gladstone and Bob Garfield are your hosts for their weekly investigation that seeks to find out how the media shapes our worldview. I've listened to every episode of On the Media for the last 12 years or more, no kidding, and the podcast of their show includes extras that you won't even hear on the radio, so you don't want to miss it. Catch them on their podcast, as I do each week, that's On the Media on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, the thing that's very attractive, I hope, to conservatives who may be listening is that this really does fit with our idea of limited government. Because there's a very small role for the government here. It's basically just being the cop on the beat that brings accountability, even biblical accountability. Because, you know, I at Inglis Industries can't do something on my property or at my plant that harms your property, that violates biblical law, English common law, American common law, and it's just wrong for me to be able to do that. So if we say to ourselves, well, no, we want to insist that the polluters pay. They pay for this 
discharge for these emissions at the marginal harm they're causing for that last ton of CO2. Now, we'll have a big debate about what that price should be. That's uh, something that economists can help us some with, scientists can help us some with, but in the end, it's a free people deciding, making a value judgment about what that price should be. But along the way, also happy for conservatives, we can eliminate all the subsidies for all the fuels. We got very upset about Solyndra, direct subsidy to a company that went bust. I think it is bad that they went bust and that we subsidized them. What we want to do with the Energy Enterprise Initiative is eliminate all those subsidies. Eliminate the production tax credit for wind, too. But end the big, and, uh, and uh, take away any other sort of props that government gives to particular, to particular fuels. But we want to eliminate the biggest subsidy of all, which is the ability to belch and burn for free without accountability. That's the one that causes a market distortion. So we fix that market distortion, and then we have the opportunity to lead in this area. Now, if I'm speaking to some conservatives here, let me suggest to you what happens. You go into an audience of conservatives, you, you speak, you ask for questions after you presented what is bedrock conservatism. Uh, by the way, for the progressives in the crowd, if it sounds familiar, Al Gore has been talking about this for about 35 years. <laughs> um, and the good news is that Art Laffer, who is one of our helpers in this, if you go to our website, you'll see him explaining in two minutes what I've just explained in a longer period of time. Uh, Art Laffer is very good to constantly protect Al Gore's reputation. He says, you know, that Al Gore has always been for revenue-neutral carbon tax, not for new revenue, which is one of the many problems that cap-and-trade had. But if you go speak to that audience and you get through to them, you get through to them that there are people like Art Laffer that are with us, and George Schultz, and Greg Mankiw, and Arglin Hubbard. These are economists or leaders that are clearly conservative. But when you watch the audience, you ask for questions afterwards, you notice that no hands go up. Because a few loud mouths in the crowd have succeeded in cultural norming and causing everyone to sit there not willing to cross the current tribal orthodoxy. So, you look at the crowd, though, and you see that conservative who desperately wants her party to be relevant to her future. You see the hunter and the angler who know things have changed. You see the libertarian who passionately believes in free enterprise and accountable markets. And you see the entrepreneur with some dollar signs. Um, and you realize that this can happen if a few people will speak up and say, you bet this is conservatism. And if it fits with what Al Gore is saying, well, fine. But it's bedrock conservatism to fix this. And then what we see is this opportunity to do something that we really want to do, that's beyond all these problems in the simple solution, but rather get beyond to a big dream, which is to light up the whole world with more energy, more mobility, more freedom. And this, I would say to you, if you're progressive here, is just understand that this is a place where a rub comes between you and conservatives. Because way too many conservatives here, way too many progressives talking about doing with less. And we have the sense that we're going to walk and eat bugs. <laughs> or perhaps that we're going to shiver or sweat in the dark, depending on the time of year. And most people say, you know, that's not very attractive, um, especially conservatives. So consider, if you're that progressive, that maybe it's not that. Maybe there is a moral obligation to figure out a way to do energy so much better, and perhaps in a distributed way, so that we can light up the developing world so that actually those people can join us in, in being able to express their creativity in ways that they couldn't when their homes were dark.
So all this takes, really, is conservatives joining this effort, because I must say to you, if you're a progressive, behold in them your indispensable partners for action. It will not happen without them. There are not enough votes in Congress to ram this through. It did not work for Waxman-Markey, and it won't work only on the left. Somehow, we have to convince conservatives, the champions of free enterprise, that this fits with exactly what they deeply believe, and then join all together and make it so we solve this problem. And gradually, I started to see, especially after I became a pastor, the impacts of what pollution does on our children, and especially people in the majority world. And that really led me to becoming the president, or I think what God had in store for me, to become the president of EEN. EEN is the Evangelical Environmental Network, and its president is the Reverend Mitch Hescox. Mitch, welcome to Immense Possibilities. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. The energizing heart of your work is creation care. Tell us what that is. Creation care is simply the biblical response to caring for God's creation. In Genesis 2.15, we're commanded to, to, to tend the garden. And so we believe if creation, the whole earth, everything in it belongs to God, then we have a responsibility to steward it, to care for it, to shepherd it. Mitch, there's no one who thinks that all evangelicals are climate deniers or vice versa, and you're disproving that notion every day in your work. But there is seeming to be a large overlap between the two groups. Why is that? And many evangelicals, in fact, most evangelicals have a conservative ideological view. There are Republicans, maybe even more conservative than that. And so when they heard the word climate change, it was always associated with things like the former Vice President Al Gore, about big government, whether it was the EPA or cap and trade. The icon of climate change for many years has been the polar bear. And while we care for all of God's creation, a polar bear is not going to move the evangelical community to action, but our children will, especially caring about our unborn children. And that's what we talk about. Most of our work is how we equate being pro-life as a creation care matter. Already in the United States, one in three children suffer from asthma, autism, ADHD, and severe allergies on how we use petrochemicals and fossil fuels. Over half of America has pollution that is unfit for our kids to breathe and we're exacerbating asthma around the world. So talking about things that impact our children and impacting their lives and health right now is a really a very, the way that we talk about climate change, which is real, which is true. And when we share that message using the values of my community, 98% of the people come on board. And you have commonly had the experience of explaining that to Christians and having them really revisit their views in a pretty quick way. When I first became president of EEN eight years ago, we had about 15,000 people that have taken action. Today, we have about two and a half million pro-life Christians who have taken action. So we've gained speed, we've gained momentum, but evangelicals are somewhere between 80 and 90 million people in the United States. And 2.5 is a good start, but we want to get up to 25 or 30 million in the next couple of years. Aha. Uh -huh. I wonder if you ever run into a Christian who would say, look, an almighty God clearly has control over the climate and its future. So this isn't anything we have to worry about. Oh, absolutely. We, you know, in theological terms, that's called dominion theology, that God takes care of everything. And contrary, scripture says just the opposite. In Isaiah chapter 24, it says human beings destroy the earth 
because they don't follow God's commandments. In fact, I often tell people that the basic handbook of sustainability is right in the Bible. Do you encourage churchgoers to initiate conversations about climate in their congregations if those conversations aren't going on? Oh, absolutely. That's one of the things we're at. We, we do on a regular basis. We have currently somewhere around 1,200 we call creation care champions around the country. And they are volunteers who have heard a passion to care about God's creation, to maybe pray about it, to teach a Sunday school class about it, to start an energy efficiency program about it, to start a community garden about it. Do some people feel like it's risky to bring this up in their churches? I think that some probably do, but I think that what we want to do is talk about grace. And I think what's one of the things that's wrong with our nation today is that, you know, we've siloed ourselves into these ideological bastions of, you know, left, right, and whatever, and we're not willing to listen to people. I give a significant amount of time to listen to people, to hear their concerns, and to answer them in truthful and realistic ways, and be honest. And when you allow people to get their feelings out, it's a lot easier for them to change and be open to new ideas if you really listen to their heart. You know, for far too long, the evangelical church has really been concerned about getting people to heaven and the idea of what I say, getting our tickets punched. While certainly that's an important part of Christianity, believing in an afterlife, the more important part of Christianity is building God's kingdom by following Jesus, our risen Lord. And I think that's one of the messages that's coming around to the evangelical church, to be more engaged on social issues, on standing up for justice and righteousness, and following Jesus to building a better world. One of the reasons I jumped over here, you were talking about the, uh, the intersection between uh, ecological, uh, I guess you could either say destruction let me, let me or thriving. It, and, let me make and it clear. Can, we yes, call it the please. triple bottom line. In, in, the world, in the corporate world, the triple bottom line uh, essentially means people, planet, and profit. We need to balance uh, financial performance with social performance and ecological performance. We have to have uh, uh, economic solutions uh, with equity and not forgetting about the economy. And this is known as the triple bottom line. Again, people, planet, and profit is a good way to, uh, good way to, three good to, to think about it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, um, All three need to work. And, and whatever then, solutions need to work for those three Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I was going to ask yeah. you if you could speak a little bit. When a lot of people think about uh, environmental issues, environmental <clears throat> movement, they kind of juxtapose as a complete opposite right. job creation. Right. Can you talk about how the two actually yes. don't have to be in contradiction with one another, but yes. can actually be? Yes, I'd like to of. speak about that. There is a fear on behalf, particularly of conservatives, uh, to acknowledge, talk about, or seek any solutions around climate change. The, the, the problem is that they don't have, they don't really have a problem with the science. They have a problem with the solutions. Mm -hmm. They, uh, they are until they are disabused of the myth that any solutions must result in bigger government taking away our freedoms, killing the economy and making us poor because those are the fears um, we're not going to get anywhere and the, the reality is is there is a solution that would help the economy, it would put people to work it would, it's been economically modeled to create 2.8 million jobs, we're talking about a carbon fee and dividend which uh, is put forth by Citizens Climate Lobby and there, there are many other groups that are calling for a revenue neutral carbon tax or fee, we like to call it a fee because, well two reasons 
reasons. The T word freaks people out. And number two, you shouldn't call it a tax if the government doesn't keep it. And the carbon fee and dividend is a 100% refund back to American citizens to protect us from increasing prices. Uh, so it's a, a fee, a dividend, and a border adjustment we won't get into at this venue now. A little too wonky for our situation at the moment. But there's a situa- there is a solution that would create jobs, promote American ingenuity and competition, put America to work, save 13,000 lives. It is a small government, fiscally conservative, market-based solution. That's... Music should be music to the ears of any principled conservative, and it also would draw down emissions faster than any uh, policy that you have ever heard of, certainly faster than any regulation. And I'm not saying we don't need certain protections, but in fact, if there's a market-based solution that would blow past certain regulations or protections, wouldn't you be for that? Yeah. Right. So, absolutely. One one last thing before it gets uh, too, too loud again. Yeah, yeah. You were talking uh, before about a bipartisan commission. Yes, a caucus. Yeah, a caucus. You want to explain a little bit about what's going on there? One of the things uh, uh, CCL, Citizens Climate Lobby, does is uh, our motto is bridging the partisan divide on climate. We meet with Republicans and Democrats regularly on Capitol Hill and in district offices. We form relationships with them. When you know who your representative is, that's a good thing. But when they know your name, that's a better thing. And what has happened is... A bipartisan climate solutions caucus, a working group of both Democrats and Republicans. Most people don't know this has happened. It's not in the headlines. This was created February last year with Carlos Curbelo, who was at the time a freshman Republican, and a Democrat, uh, Ted Deutsch, out of West Palm Beach. When this formed with one in one... Bloomberg, Bloomberg News called it the caucus to save the world. New York Times called it a surprising step towards sanity. It grew to two and two and three and three. Uh, up until the election, it was ten and ten, and then it was a bit disrupted. Uh, one person retired, people were voted out, it was six and nine. It just weeks after the election grew back to ten and ten, twelve and twelve. As of last count, just a couple of days ago, it's up to 19 Republicans, 19 Democrats coming to the table in a toxic-free environment to talk about economically viable solutions to the climate crisis. Mm -hmm. And this is amazing. Most people don't know this is happening, that there is, in fact, while we read the headlines and we're rightfully very upset by the disturbing news, a lot of the headlines underscore and highlight the controversy, and a lot of it is serious. But what is not on the headlines is the huge amount of momentum in Capitol Hill, in Congress particularly, among Republicans who are moving the needle, who are bucking their party, manning up and womaning up in some cases, and um, summoning the leadership and courage required to actually lead. And that's what we need. And that is what happens when enough people are able to develop their own personal and political power. And that's something we do at citizensclimatelobby.org. We're 60,000 volunteer members, 40, uh, four, 400 chapters as of last count. We're worldwide, but mostly North America. Big Canadian footprint. And we were very helpful in creating and promoting this caucus. All right, thank you, Greg. Bob English, a former Republican congressman from South Carolina, whose views on climate change and some other things retired him from politics in 2010, sooner than he'd planned. Bob currently heads the group RepublicEN.org, which carries the tagline, Energy Optimist, Climate Realist. Bob English, welcome to Immense Possibilities. Great to be with you, Jeff. Thank you. What's the core purpose and approach of RepublicEN.org? Um, we engage and enroll and educate conservatives about free enterprise answers to climate change. At its core, what is the best free enterprise approach to, to addressing climate change? It, following the principle of accountability, basically. Um, it's, 
It's a core tenet of conservatism that we should all be accountable for actions. It underlies um, our political philosophy and for people of faith, it underlies even a, uh, the, the, the faith uh, that uh, human beings are responsible moral actors. And so accountability is a key. It's just a matter of putting all the cost in on all the fuels and eliminating all the subsidies. Then in the liberty of enlightened self-interest, 300 million plus consumers in America would be looking for better, cleaner options. And if we uh, do this through an effective border adjustment so that we tax, uh, apply the carbon tax on imports as though they were made here, then we would get 7 billion people in on the enlightened self-interest of looking for the better, cleaner, faster, cheaper fuels because they'd be paying the true cost of that energy they're using. And at that point, innovation happens much more rapidly than government regulations or mandates could ever imagine. But the principle we're following of accountability um, is uh, was enunciated pretty well by Dr. Friedman, Milton Friedman, on the Phil Donahue show in the 80s, where he talked about, to Phil Donahue and Phil Donahue asked him, well, what would you do about pollution? And uh, Dr. Friedman says, well, you tax it, of course. And then Dr. Friedman goes on to explain with bedrock conservatism that when something that one party is doing affects third parties that aren't part of a contract, there's a role for the government in saying, no, no, you've got to pay those consequences. You can't externalize those, those, uh, those costs. You have to internalize them to your product. But we want to eliminate the biggest subsidy of all, which is the ability to belch and burn for free without accountability. That's the one that causes a market distortion. I'm in, Bob. What, what's in the way? What are the biggest obstacles? The problem is that the solution seems anathema. Bigger government, larger control of our lives, doing with less. Understand that this is a place where a rub comes between you and conservatives. Because way too many conservatives hear way too many progressives talking about doing with less. And we have the sense that we're going to walk and eat bugs. <laughs> or perhaps that we're going to shiver or sweat in the dark, depending on the time of year. And most people say, you know, that's not very attractive, um, especially conservatives. Give me a paragraph that is very attractive to conservatives. The, the attractive would be this. What if we follow the principle that we know works of accountability? Blessings flow from accountability. Havoc flows from the lack of it. What if we just made all fuels accountable and eliminated all the subsidies so there's no longer a government putting its thumb on the scales for this one over that one. No more lobbying about that. And then we just watch the free enterprise system deliver innovation to willing customers demanding it because they see their true cost of energy on their meter and at the pump. Is our current system of campaign financing an obstacle to this? Yeah, it's not just campaign cash that explains it. It explains some, some percentage of the problem we face, but the larger percentage really is just this, this uh, lack of faith in the future and the lack of our, our, our belief in innovation and our ability to do things. And it's rejectionism. It's rejection of the science of climate change, rejection of all things Obama, of course, and rejection more fundamentally, the idea that we can come together and solve really big challenges. And that, that's what we must overcome. There are some who still want to debate the validity of climate change and the degree of human activity as a cause of all that. Do you engage in those conversations? Are they, is there any value in that anymore? And why or why not? You know, if somebody wants to dispute the science of climate change, it really is somewhat a waste of time. Um, what we choose to do is actually just blow right over them and say, you know, listen, if you're listening to this show and you just heard a climate disputer um, uh, say that the talking points from the Heartland Institute, you know they're wrong. 
And But you know probably that what they're really saying is they haven't liked the solution they've heard yet. So let's talk about the solution. Is that to say what sometimes sounds like denial at bottom isn't really denial? Yeah, it's... We really think that most of the time it's solution aversion. If I tell you, Jeff, here's the plan of surgery for that back problem you're having. I hope you don't have one. But anyway, if if there were, um, first, we're going to take off your head. Um, when you got your head off, we work on your spine. Then we put your head back on. You're going to say to me, thanks, doc. I'm feeling a lot better. I don't have a back problem because the solution is nuts. You're not going to take my head off. What conservatives have heard is a big government that wants to run their lives, uh, headquartered at the UN, maybe. Um, and they just think, this is nuts. We're not doing that. Um, but if they could hear that there's a small government solution with a very small footprint, with the government simply being the honest cop on the beat that says all cost in, all subsidies out, then they could, uh, they could, they could stop shrinking in science denial and realize that this concept of accountability is what they're really good at. What about your work right now gives you the most hope that we can navigate our way to a viable climate future? And what discourages you the most? Most encouraging thing is being with young conservatives because they get it. Um, they, they don't shrink in science denial. Um, and they want their party to not be the grumpy old party. They want it to be the grand opportunity party. The thing that's most discouraging is dealing with their parents and grandparents. <laughs> they're, they're a little bit harder for us to reach um, because many people, you know, particularly folks that feel like they've seen too much change in their lives, they just don't want any more change. And they want to rely on the current fuels we've got. They don't want to hear about innovation. Um, but somehow we need to make it less threatening to them. And we think really that the way through their to their heads is through their hearts. And mostly those hearts are going to be opened by their kids talking to them. So um, we're counting a lot on uh, young conservatives helping us reach their parents and grandparents. It's really important that we realize that um, we're doing an experiment uh, within our own homes. Our, our one common home is, uh, as the Pope says, you know, this is really pretty irrational to be having a food fight here while we're doing the experiment on ourselves. Why don't we get together and figure out what could work for both progressives and conservatives? Um, and we think there's an answer there. Um, and, um, but it does take, uh, it, it, it takes some acceptance of the science and the, uh, and the existence of a free market solution for conservatives. And it takes some give on the part of progressives to be willing to to work with conservatives and to hear it expressed their way. We just heard clips today starting with two TED Talks, one from former Republican Congressman Bob Inglis and the other from author and entrepreneur Ted Halstead. Following that, Immense Possibilities had an interview with evangelical Reverend Mitch Hescox. Then there was a piece of a field report from Democracy at Work, an economic update. And finally, we just heard a second interview on immense possibilities with Bob Inglis. Now, we've got a few things to discuss today, so no voicemails. Firstly, a huge thanks to Jeff Golden. He's the host we heard today on immense possibilities. He's actually a listener, and he heard the previous episode talking about how to, you know, trying to understand conservatives. And he heard my tease at the end of the show that I was going to do a climate episode that included a conversation about a conservative approach to solving climate change. So he got in touch and informed me about the existence of his program. I hadn't heard of it before and told me, of course, that there was this particular episode that we heard clips from today in which he talks with three different people about the growing right-left alliance for finding climate change solutions. And absolutely, without his input, this would have been a very different episode. Uh, Amanda and I watched that immense possibilities last night. She said that it was the most hopeful thing she had seen 
at least since the election, probably much longer. And so for details on the show, check them out at immensepossibilities.org. And frankly, if you're a local PBS station program manager, I would seriously consider adding them to your lineup. Uh, Right now, they're on about 20 stations, mostly in the Northwest, but I think we could all use a little bit more hopefulness in our media landscape, and there's not much that's more hopeful than a show with a title like Immense Possibilities. Secondly today, as promised in the last episode, let's talk a little bit about this conservative-progressive divide for a minute. We just talked about a conservative approach to climate change policy. Most people listening are progressive, so how did that make you feel about the policy? If you're being intellectually honest and you think about whether you felt a resistance to the proposal based on who it was coming from, did it make no effect at all? Just think about that. How, how did it make you feel? And now same for conservatives. There are fewer of you out there, but I know you are out there and you're listening. So again, be intellectually honest and ask yourself the same question. Is this the best climate change policy you've heard so far? And do you think you liked it more because it was coming from conservative thinkers who put their heads together to come up with a market-based solution instead of a regulation-heavy-based solution? And if you like the idea... Maybe could you give some credit to a super progressive show like this one for being open-minded enough to support such a conservative policy based on the merits, because I think it would work, rather than based on ideology, which would dictate that progressives are supposed to hate market-based ideas or they're supposed to want regulation for everything or whatever. Uh, Based on the merits, I think it would work, so can we get a little credit for that? Now, just think about your answers to those questions, and let me tell you this story. I have a little bit of a background in climate activism myself. Before this show became my full-time gig, I worked at a small sort of regional climate action network. It was called the Chesapeake Climate Action Networks, folks in Maryland, Virginia, and D.C., And the director is this guy, Mike Tidwell. He's a former Peace Corps volunteer. He installed solar panels on his roof for electricity and hot water. He installed a corn-burning stove for heat so he can burn corn instead of natural gas, uh, which would be used to run the radiators. In other words, he's a super hippie, no-good pinko communist. And I worked for Mike. I was his assistant, but I was also the videographer. I produced podcasts for them. And then I was just the all-around, do-whatever-needs-to-be-done kind of guy. And just to give you a little more of a sense of this organization, to be clear, we were not moderates. We were the type of group that, yes, sometimes lobbied state legislators like, you know, normal, uh, you know, lobby group. And then sometimes we would chain ourselves to things and sit there until we got arrested. So, you know, if you think that the Sierra Club is full of a bunch of environmentalist wackos, then know that we were the ones who thought groups like that were way too conservative for our taste. Okay, so that's a little background back to this conservative market-based fee and dividend policy that we've been talking about. So that Bob Inglis TED Talk that was in the show, uh, he was proposing a carbon tax. That was from 2013. And the Ted Halstead TED Talk proposing the fee and dividend policy, that was from only a couple of months ago. That, That was really recent. And he was talking about his organization that he just officially launched in February of this year. And so, and he talked about how he worked with Republican standard bearers like James Baker to come up with their proposal that's receiving widespread support today. Now, the interesting part is that if you go to YouTube and search for cap and dividend, the oldest video that will come up is an animated explainer video that talks about this policy, and it was published in December 2008, eight years ago. And for me, at least, even more interestingly, The second oldest video that will come up was published just a few months later in April 2009 and happens to be one that I personally filmed and edited. Let's have a listen. Hi, my name is Mike Tidwell. I'm executive director of the Chesapeake Climate Action Network, and I have spent the last eight years of my life doing nothing but trying to figure out a way to solve global warming. Uh, you may have heard of a lot of different approaches, cap and trade as an approach, a carbon tax as an approach. I'm here to talk to you about a policy that I believe is the best. It's called cap and dividend. Remember that phrase, cap and dividend. The good news is Congressman Chris Van Hollen of Maryland has just introduced a bill that would actually achieve this policy of cap and dividend. So what is it? 
Any policy to solve global warming has to have three basic features in it. Number one, if it's really going to work, it has to be simple, not complicated, okay? So simple. Number two, it's got to be fair. It's got to treat all people equally and be fair and just. And number three, if it's really going to work, it's got to be built to last, okay? Three features, all right? Let's take them one by one. Simple. Alright, a cap and dividend program envisions a very simple cap where three or four hundred companies in America who actually introduce the greenhouse gas generating energy into the economy, that's where they have to have a permit. That's where you're going to cap it and stop it and bring it down. What does that mean? Well, it means that instead of trying to regulate every tailpipe and every smokestack in America, we're just going to approach the guys who are unloading the oil from the Saudi Arabian tanker and introducing the oil into our economy, who are bringing the coal up from the ground and selling it to utilities for electricity. It's called an upstream cap, very transparent, only involves a few hundred companies, easy to do. The bad news is your energy prices, at least initially, are going to go up. You're going to pay more at the pump for gasoline, more for coal-fired electricity. And that doesn't sound very fair, right? Well, under a cap and dividend program, it is fair. Why? Because all the money that the corporations pay when they go to auction to get a permit to put coal into the economy and oil into the economy, that money is actually going to go to the U.S. Treasury. We're talking hundreds of billions of dollars a year. And then what are we going to do with it under a cap and dividend program? We're simply going to give it back to you. We're just going to divide the auction money pie into equal shares and give you a dividend every month, not once a year, every month. So you'll be wired straight to your checking account or you'll get an electronic card mailed to you that has $80, $90, $100 a month at the beginning years of this cap and then it'll go up even more after that. You pay your mortgage every month, you pay your electricity bills every month, why shouldn't you get a carbon rebate check every month? That's what cap and dividend does. Cap it upstream, simple cap, transparent, only three or four hundred companies, distribute it evenly to all Americans in a very, very fair way. And what this does is once you get a dividend check every month, it's going to protect most Americans from rising energy prices. At least 60% or more of Americans will either break even or actually have more money in their pocket. Why? Because that dividend check will be equal to or more than what you're actually spending in increased energy costs from the cap. So this actually is good for 60% of Americans. And for the 40% who use a lot of energy, who have big houses, and big cars, they're not gonna, their dividend's not gonna match their increase in energy prices, but they have more money. And hey, this is a signal to be more efficient, right? They'll be fine. 60% taken care of by the dividend, the other 40%, hey, get more efficient. That's how it works, and that's why it's fair. And so now the last feature, built the last. Why are we gonna give every American an equal share, an equal dividend every month? Whether you're rich or poor, you'll get the same 80, 90, $100 check every month because that's how we make it last. You know, Franklin D. Roosevelt said in the 1930s, if he could create a social security system that was universal and everybody gets the same amount of money, then it would be a system that no future president, no successive government could ever take away from him. And he was right. Why? Because once Americans begin to get those benefit checks, no one will be able to take it away from them. And as people retire, they'll be able to count on it. It's dependable. It would survive for generations. And FDR knew that. And he was right. It survived over 70 years because it's universal and it's equitable. The same thing has to happen with this carbon approach because it's going to take us at least 50 years to solve global warming and squeeze carbon out of our economy. Therefore, to make it durable, to make it survive 25 congressional cycles, to make it survive 10 presidential administrations, it has to be universal like Social Security. Everybody gets the same amount, the same check every month and people come to depend on it and count on it and feel good about it knowing that it's equitable, that it's fair while solving our national security energy problems and climate change. So it's built to last. It's fair and it's simple. And as you listen to other people talk about solutions to global warming, all the different approaches that are out there, as you hear them, ask yourself, is this approach that someone's trying to get me to understand? Is it simple? Is it fair? Is it built to last? And I think that you'll find, by comparison, cap and dividend comes out ahead. Now that is interesting. That policy sounded really familiar, except this time it's being proposed by a sandal-wearing, solar panel-installing Peace Corps volunteer who burns corn instead of gas in the winter to keep warm. I mean, who's ever even heard of that? 
And we just learned that this legislation was originally introduced way back in 2009 by Chris Van Hollen of Maryland, one of the most progressive members of Congress. So now ask yourself again, how do you feel about this policy and why? And is it really fair to call this a conservative solution to climate change just because it's market-based? My answer to that question is, well, to be fair, no, but ultimately, who cares? The point is that all indications show that it's going to work, and that's all that matters. So now, a little later than usual, you have finally reached the activism portion of today's show. A quick reminder about a couple of the organizations we heard about in today's show. There's the Evangelical Environmental Network. If that sounds up your alley, then check them out at creationcare.org. Also, there is the Citizens Climate Lobby, where they are doing a bipartisan push for a market-based fee and dividend legislation in Congress. Connect with them at citizensclimatelobby.org. And finally, here is what I want all of you to do as often and in as many different venues as you can on social media, email, phone, text, face-to-face, whatever, any other way you communicate with people, start telling everyone you know how excited you are about the great conservative proposal to fight climate change. Hey, everybody, it turns out the conservatives have come up with a better solution to climate change than all those big government regulate-you-to-death Democrats, those bedrock conservative principles of setting fair rules and allowing the hand of the market really nailed it this time. So, of course, you can send people to this episode you're currently listening to, and they will become informed of all of this. But for any of your more conservative friends or family who you think would just see the title Best of the Left and balk at the idea of uh, the mere notion that they would listen to a show like that, I suggest just sending them to the Ted Halstead TED Talk titled A Climate Solution Where All Sides Can Win. And we'll just keep the little secret about progressives actually having been pushing this policy for nearly a decade. We'll just keep that between us. Now, just one last reminder before I go that On the Media is WNYC Studios' weekly podcast and dose of sanity investigating how the media shape our worldview. Hosts Brooke Gladstone and Bob Garfield are here to offer help if you, like them, are questioning the very nature of our reality. Get On the Media on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And, of course, as always, keep the comments coming into this show at 202 999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this This and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway and outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.